Bible Church, if you're visiting with us, let me extend a very special welcome to you. Glad that you are all here. Um, it's been a long week around here uh, with Wally's uh, health failing and his passing on Thursday afternoon. And um, it's been a little hard on me. Um, been hard on many of you. And um, we're going to take time to celebrate Wally's life later this afternoon. I hope you all will come. Um, he's a dear friend. And um, I hope you all will come to that. Um, but we also get to celebrate another kind of new life today. And um, Chrissy, if you would come down. Um, this is Chrissy Bybee. Chrissy is my neighbor. Uh, and she has come to Christ at this church here in the last year. She's one of those stickers over on that wall right there. And we prayed for her uh, as a church and as, uh, as husband and wife, Karen and I prayed for her. And she came to Christ through this ministry of this church this year. Started coming in about December, started coming seriously in about January. A couple of weeks ago, started serving in Awana. And today, she is standing up in front of you because she has decided she wants to join this august institution <laughs> and be one of our members. So, Chrissy, I have some things I'd like to go through with you. First of all, step up to the mic. Do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And do you desire, above all else, to live for him? Yes, I do. Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in the confession of faith? Yes, I do. Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services? By your encouragement of our members, the willing use of your talents in this ministry, and the giving of your means as God prospers you? Yes, I do. Chrissy. This is great. This is just great. I want to read a couple passages to you. Uh, this is Colossians chapter 2, 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And also 1 Timothy four twelve, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for Chrissy. I thank you for her girls, Sierra and Sienna, and how they have become part of our church family. Father, I pray your blessing on her life, that you would protect her that you would help her new faith to grow, that you would build her up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that you would empower her life for your Holy Spirit, that she might live in a way that pleases you every day of her life until you take her into glory, into your presence. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, sister. We're in Philippians, and um, it is a, it's a beautiful day outside. I don't know if you noticed, but the sun came back, started to worry, not for myself, but for my children, 
or I have seen it, right? Um, I have seen the sunshine. Started wondering if they ever would. But um, it is a beautiful day outside. It's a crisp morning. And we're going to continue our study in the book of Philippians. We're all the way to chapter 4 now. It's gone pretty fast. Um, But this morning is about uh, making and maintaining peace in the church. And as we all know, uh, the church is not immune to conflict. Amen? Church is not immune. Uh, Within the U.S., there are just over 100 major denominations Uh, From the Assembly of God all the way down to uh, the Reformed Church in America, right? Uh, There's about 17 major denominational types. Um, There are uh, Baptists and Brethren and Catholic and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Reformed and Assemblies and Episcopalians and all kinds, right? And the reality of it is, is that the differences a lot of times between churches and denominations are actually very small. And between uh, churches within the same family grouping, you know, your Presbyterian and Reformed folks, uh, you know, the difference between, say, a Reformed church in America guy and an Orthodox Presbyterian church fella uh, is name, mostly. Uh, Theology is pretty similar, right? Uh, Between all of your 75 varieties of Baptists, um, pretty similar theology and belief system. And a lot of times what gives rise to a new denomination or a new church is not uh, a passionate desire to see Jesus Christ exalted in a community in which his presence is not known, but is a desire to be separate from and away from people in our current church with whom we've had conflict, right? And so over time, differences harden into disagreements that harden into factions, that harden into splits, which harden into new denominations that now, even though they name the name of Jesus Christ and hold him up as Lord, believe the scriptures are true, that God did really come in the flesh in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for sins and was raised from the dead, and now we can't worship together. And by the way, this is not new. This is not a new phenomenon, right? Uh, within 70 years, certainly no later than 70 years after the resurrection, what you find in the book of Revelation is seven churches, uh, each of whom have different problems, but look amazingly like uh, American Christianity. <laughs> and if you read the letters that Paul wrote, or that John wrote, or that Peter wrote, or that James wrote to the churches of their era, uh, the problems that they experience are amazingly like the ones we have in the church today. And what you find is that despite 2,000 years of knowing Christ and seeing him resurrected, the church tends to have the same sorts of issues. Why? Because it's the same sort of people who are present, right? Uh, whenever there's a radical idea that we're going to start a new kind of church with a, without all the sinners, uh, somehow they sneak in, right? <laughs> Why? Because the guy who founds it is a sinner. And as soon as he adds anyone other than his wife, he's got somebody with whom he's going to potentially disagree about theology, right? In some churches, you even start to wonder about her, 
Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, and this is not a new phenomenon, okay? Whenever you have sinful people, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have disagreement. You're going to have potential uh, for severe disagreement. In fact, uh, you're going to see it here this morning. Uh, and Paul is going to, in fact, tell us, uh, he's going to give us some principles in the example of dealing with conflict between these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, Okay. So if you've got your Bible, let's look at um, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, you know something? I... I I don't know about you, and I know I've said this before, but how would you like to have your name recorded in Scripture? I think that might be a pretty cool honor, actually, you know, to have your name written in the Scriptures for other people to read about down through history. I would just hope that it was something good that I had done that, I was, that other people were going to read about, right? And with Euodia and Syndicate, you know, this is kind of the great trivia question on them. Who are these ladies? These are two women who are fighting like cats in a sack <laughs> in the Philippian church. And that's the, you know, that's the only place they get mentioned in the whole Bible. How would you like to read for 2,000 years about a fight that you had with somebody in church? Not me. But uh, these gals... Uh, are having a fight. This is not a minor spat. This is in the category of what we would call major throwdown these women are having. And it's causing division in the church. And how do I know that it's a bad one? Well, first of all, because Paul, who is several hundred miles away in prison, has heard about it and is writing to address it. And whenever there's a public fight, people inevitably start choosing sides. And there's a couple other interesting details to note here. Number one, these ladies are both Christians. These ladies are both Christians. Look at the text here. It says, these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. In other words, they, they had been serving the Lord with Paul in, in spreading the gospel. These are not just Christians. These are mature Christians. These are people who have been serving alongside the apostle, and he was glad to have them. And that brings up an important point, and it's the first one on your outline there, that even mature Christians sometimes disagree with each other. Uh, it's not as if when we mature in the Lord that sometime, somehow we just get to the point where we stop having disagreements. Right? And sometimes our disagreements are even healthy, right? It is possible, believe it or not, to have a healthy disagreement where 
the process of disagreeing and coming to peace brings about a better outcome in the long run than not having the disagreement. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about Adam and Eve and how uh, Adam was with his wife when she ate the fruit. It's like, where was that guy on that one? Genius? Why didn't you step up and protect your wife, right? Um, and then we, we had some discussion to the effect that if it had been the man who had taken the fruit first, his wife would have corrected him, probably. <laughs> but he just kind of stood there like a lump, <laughs> okay? Um, sometimes disagreement is good, right? It's protective, it's healthy, it keeps you from doing things that you otherwise would stupidly go ahead and do, right? And you have somebody to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, stop. I don't think this is the right pathway. Sometimes disagreement is a healthy thing. Where it becomes an unhealthy thing is where uh, you allow the disagreement to intrude upon the relationship that you have with the person. And to say that your position on this issue is supreme over the relationship you have with the person. Disagreements are going to arise in the church, right? Even among the mature, even among people who have been believers for a while. Uh, and it's because they're only, there's, within the church, there's only one kind of people that God builds the church with, right? And it's with redeemed sinners. And sinners tend to disagree with each other. None of us has arrived at perfection yet, right? And the issue, so the issue is not whether or not a church is going to have conflict, but how we're going to deal with it when we have it, right? We're going to, since Paul made an example of these two ladies, we're going to use their example and learn from it, okay? Notice what Paul does. First of all, he is a model of tactful exhortation with these two ladies. He doesn't, even though he's an apostle, he doesn't, take his apostolic authority and bring it down on these ladies. He could. He could say, I'm an apostle, I'm telling you, get along. And I think if he had done that, it would have been kind of a forced reconciliation that would have occurred, kind of like when I take my two boys who are fighting with one another and I stand them up and I say, now say you're sorry and give each other a hug. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> you get kind of that, right? So Paul doesn't do that. He wants genuine reconciliation between these two ladies. And so he doesn't say, I order you, even though he could. He was an apostle. He could say, I order you to do this. I command you to do this. Instead, he says, I plead with Euodia. I plead with Syntyche. And notice, too, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't take sides. He stays neutral. Stays on the outside of the situation so he can say, I plead with both of you to get along in the Lord. He doesn't take sides. And the reason that he doesn't is that he recognizes that what is the bigger issue is the fractured relationship, not whatever principle or issue is at stake. The bigger issue is the fracture of the relationship. And he wants that fractured relationship to be healed, and then they can deal with the issue. 
So he doesn't take sides and go, well, now, Yodia, here are your good points in this argument, and Syntyche, here are your good points, and, you know, let's form a compromise here and come up with a solution. No, he doesn't do that. He just says, look, you guys work it out. But remember, the relationship is more important than the issue. This is your sister in Christ. And in addition to that, he reminds them of the fact that they are mature believers and that they have even served together with him in the past. He's reminding them of what they have in common. Not of the issue that divides them, but what they have in common, which is their past service with him in the cause of the gospel. In fact, he refers to it, and I think this is kind of a gentle poke, if you will, from Paul. He uses a word... The word that's translated in, in the NIV, contending at my side with the gospel, is actually a word that means warfare. You've engaged in warfare before, but it was for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of one of you being right. And so, in other words, Paul is kind of saying to them, look, if you want to fight about something, fight about something worth fighting for. Fight for the spread of the gospel in the world instead of with each other. I heard, heard one guy say that the Christians are the only group of people in the world that forms a circular firing squad. <laughs> okay, and I'm not sure if that's true, but I know that that sometimes happens. That we as believers in Christ treat one another as the enemy instead of Satan as the enemy, and the objective as winning rather than uh, the spreading the truth about Christ in the world, right? And whenever we start to focus more on, I need to win this argument, we lose the person. It's possible to win the battle and lose the war, right? Because the real war is about spreading the gospel in the world, not having victory over my adversary within the church. And finally, notice that he not only exhorts these ladies on a personal level to make peace, but he includes another fellow. He calls him loyal yoke fellow. And we don't know who this person is. It may be, um, it may be Epaphroditus, because I think he is the one who is carrying back the letter. Uh, it may be that loyal yoke fellow is not, is not a description, but actually his name. Um, because, you know, unlike in English where you capitalize proper names and so forth, in, in Greek there's no capitalization. And so you, and it, all the letters just kind of run together, in fact, uh, until you run out of a line and then you go down to the next line and keep writing. Um, and so you don't know, is this the guy's actual name or is this just a description of who this person is? We don't know who he is, but we do know that he is exhorted and called by God uh, through Paul, to help these ladies. He says, I, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women. And, and the point is, is that peacemaking sometimes requires outside assistance there. Sometimes two people get to coming at one another to the point that they need a mediator. They need somebody to help them come to peace. Peacemaking sometimes requires that. Um, so how do we make peace? Here. And Paul, I think, demonstrates it well. 
He says, first of all, encourage, and I'm just going to try and draw these principles out of the text. First of all, encourage reconciliation between people privately first. Encourage reconciliation between people privately first. And then if they can't resolve it together, then tactfully and gently and without taking sides, you want to step in and remind them of the comparative importance of the gospel versus their conflict. Call them back to what they have in common because the things that bind us together as believers in Christ that we have in common are much more important than the things that divide us, right? I mean, after all, we're all going to sit at the same table when we get to Father's house, right? And if you're going to have to sit next to each other and eat with each other in heaven, then why can't we get along now? Right? We're all part of the same family. There's no high table and low table, good brother and black sheep. We're all part of the same family. And the things that bind us together as believers in Christ are far more important than the things which divide us. And so Paul says, look, remind them of this. He gives us this example of reminding them of the fact that they used to fight for something worth fighting over, the spread of the gospel. And then, if you can't resolve it, then you bring in uh, perhaps the congregation, but also its leaders, You know, like he has done here with this person he calls a loyal yoke fellow. I think it's probably an elder. Maybe it's Epaphroditus. I don't know. Maybe it's just another person in the congregation that's known to be this person. But notice how what he call, the term he uses that yoke fellow. You know what a yoke fellow is? When you have a yoke on an ox, on a, you know on an ox, you have two of them, right? You have two holes. In other words, somebody who's going to pull alongside you. It's not somebody who's driving the the wagon with the whip, taking after you. It's the person who is yoked next to you, and pulling the load with you. And sometimes when conflict gets severe enough that the congregation and its leaders need to step in, even with two people, and say, look, we love you both. You need to figure out how to get along here, okay? Because peace and unity in the church is a primary value to be upheld. It's not a secondary hope that we ignore when it's difficult or it's inconvenient. This is something that's to be upheld. And so if the rest of the congregation has to get involved, and here Paul involves them, because this is public, remember. This letter is going to be read in public to the entire church. I don't do that. I don't know if you've noticed. But I don't, as a pastor, stand up and and say, now let me tell you about who's having problems in the church. And this is what God's Word says they should do about it. Okay? Paul does. I think that'd be too embarrassing, okay? Um, Or let me tell you about my stuff. No, we don't have time for that, okay? Um, This letter is going to be read publicly, and he's involved in the entire congregation because it's an issue that affects the entire congregation. Just as when you get hurt, it affects the rest of your body. When two people are hurting within the congregation, sometimes congregation has to step in. And that's what Paul's asking them to do here. Um, now, I want to talk in verses 4 to 7 about maintaining peace. And this, 
This might surprise you. How do you maintain peace? Once you've made peace between people, how do you maintain it? Well, Paul says he starts off, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, this is, this is another one of these times when Paul uses this word, and this word appears 16 times in Philippians, a form of either joy or rejoicing. I think it's the theme that he's trying to get at, that we should rejoice in difficult circumstances. And this is a difficult one, these two ladies. It says rejoice. And this is not, by the way, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's not just some kind of free-floating spiritual aphorism that's out there just waiting for us to grab it and make a Sunday school song out of it. You know, I think that it makes a pretty good Sunday school song, honestly. You know, we've done it in a round before when I was a kid. You know, this side do rejoice in the Lord always. And you say, and then you start in, rejoice in the Lord always, right? Okay, and that's good. And it's good to, to teach kids spiritual truth. But look at the context here where this is given he says look here when we're in conflict within the church it's an indicator that we're failing to rejoice in the lord when always if if you are going at it hammer and tongs with your fellow believer there could be a chance that you have not thought rejoice in the lord always right there could be a chance that that's not happening um, and it seems to me that if we focus our attention there, and that's Paul's prescription. If, the, if he's a doctor, this is what he's telling us to do. Rejoice in the Lord always. And if we get into serious conflict, we tend to get our focus on the other person and off of the Lord and off of our relationship with him and off of enjoying our relationship with him. But if we continue to say no, I'm going to focus on the Lord and what he would have me to do and on my relationship with him and enjoying that relationship. It's just possible we might be able to see things in proper perspective and have less conflict. And Paul doesn't stop there, though. He says, he gives us another step. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, gentleness, this word is translated, gentleness is translated in the Beatitudes, you know, uh, that passage um, where Jesus talks about blessed are. It's the same word as used there when it says blessed are the meek. Gentleness. And this is, this is a great word. It's just, the idea that's used outside the New Testament, it's used to refer to a stallion with all of his power and strength and energy that is so gentle and tame that a little child can ride him. In other words, you have all this power and energy and you keep it under control. And gentleness is the quality of putting a rein on your emotions and your body so that you treat people kindly. Even though you could lash out with all this power, you keep a rein on that. You put a bit and bridle on that and you jerk it in hard so that you treat people kindly. 
And he says, let that be evident to everybody. In other words, you want everybody to be able to see that this is how you are. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that somebody offends you and you stand there and... I'm not going to say anything, but I'm going to let the fact that I'm restraining it (laughs) be evident. No. You want it to become such a part of you that you're not having to visibly rein it in. Right? That your gentleness becomes part of you. That you are broke to the bit, in a sense. And on top of that, he says, and the reason you should do this is because the Lord is near. Now, commentators disagree on what that means. What, in what sense is Jesus near? And there are those who say, well, that means the Lord is eschatologically near. In other words, Jesus is coming back sometime soon, and the end of all of history is going to happen. And so you don't want to be found by Jesus being a grump and a problem in the church with everybody you know. You want to be gentle. Because, after all, how embarrassing would it be for Jesus to show up and you be having at it with somebody? Right? Uh, and there are those who think that. And, and honestly, I think that's a reasonable interpretation. Because very often the scripture does, um, in fact, virtually every time in the New Testament you find... Uh, a comment that Jesus is coming back and the end of all things is near, you also find a moral exhortation to go along with it. So it's not just given to satisfy our curiosity, but given to motivate us to obedience to Christ. And so this may well be the the sense in which Paul means near. But I, I think, I think, that Paul is reminding them not that Jesus is coming back soon, but that he is personally near. That he is personally near. In other words, sometimes when you get into a sharp disagreement with somebody, you tend to forget that God is there. That he witnesses your words. That he, on top of that, is there by His Holy Spirit to empower you to respond differently. That He is near to your situation and knows what's going on and is perfectly capable and sovereign enough to oversee even the outcome of this. And we forget that God is near to us. That He loves us. That He is sovereign and rules even over this. That he has a plan. And that even if this turns out as negatively as we fear. That God is still sovereign. And he is still working all things together for good. For those that love him. And it's interesting that the next thing Paul says is. Remember the Lord is near. So you should pray. Don't worry. But pray. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know, when I get in a fight with somebody, like let's say I get in a fight with Karen, as happens sometimes. uh, The reason that I am 
doing that a lot of times is that I am anxious about the outcome. Well, if we go your way, I'm worried that this is going to be the result. And I don't want that to be the result. And, and so I can't go your way. Because what if that happens? Then we'll be in a mess. And she, on the other side of it, is worried about another outcome. Right? Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Why not? Because God is near. And he is sovereign. Instead, pray. So when the opportunity for a fight comes along, here's what you should do. Pray. And ask God about everything. Say, in everything, including this fight you're having, in everything, by, for, by prayer and petition, present your request to God, right? And then it says, with thanksgiving. So in other words, when God does come through and deliver and work things out, then do what? Thank him. Remember that God answered your prayer and thank him. And, you know, I know this is hardly uh, earth-shaking, totally novel teaching, right? Uh, this is not... Um, you know, this is not uh, the identity of the Antichrist. Uh, this is not um, even discussion about the Trinity. This is basic Christianity 101 kind of stuff, right? But a lot of times it's hard for us to remember, especially when we're in the midst of conflict, that God is sovereign, that he is near, that we can pray, and that he will oversee us. And that if we do that, what's the next verse? And the peace of God, which surpasses or which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know what? I found that to be true. I can get stressed and wrapped around and in conflict. And ugh. and when I go to God, and, I, and I, I have a journal that I keep sometimes, and I'll open that up and I'll say, Lord, these are the things I'm going to lay on you today. And I'll make him a list. And I say, take care of these for me. <laughs> They're beyond my capacity. You know what happens? All of a sudden, peace descends on my heart and life. God keeps this promise. Lord, I need you to work this one out. I can't fix it. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what the answer is to this situation. This person really upsets me. Help me. Peace. Descends. So, here's the question. Are you at peace? Are you at peace? Are you in conflict with any of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe you're in conflict with people you work with or in conflict with your neighbors or maybe you're in conflict with um, somebody in your family, someone who's close to you, maybe your spouse. How are we going to put this passage into practice? I think we start by identifying the things that you hold in common with the person that you're in conflict with. And particularly if they're your brother or your sister in Christ, 
That's a lot more significant list than whatever the issue is. And then, I think you start praying and praising God. And thanking Him for all the good things that He has done in your life. Because it's hard to praise God for His goodness. And at the same time, be mad at your brother and sister for whom Christ died. And then you try to remember that God is still sovereign over your situation, that he is near, that he loves you, that he also loves this person. And pray and pray and pray and thank God for the outcome. And try to be reconciled to your brother and sister. You know, I was going through uh, Wally's Bible in preparation for this funeral this afternoon. And it's always interesting to do. Particularly when you have a Bible like his, which is marked on virtually every page. There's, you know, there's more stuff that's underlined and written in than I think was the original text uh, <laughs> in, that, in that book. Uh, but in First Peter, there's a section where, where Peter talks about, Do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And Wally had written over in the margin his little notes. He said, you got three possible responses. The satanic response or the demonic response is to repay good with evil. The normal human response is to repay evil for evil and good for good. Somebody does nasty to me, I'm going to do nasty back. Somebody TPs my house, I'm forking their yard and saran wrapping their car. Okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and if they do good, well, we give good back, right? But the divine response is to, when evil is done, repay with good. And that's really what this text comes down to, that no matter what the conflict is, remember that God is still sovereign. And that the, his entire plan for human history does not hinge on you winning. Sometimes I tend to think that it does, you know. That if I don't win this argument, God's plan and, and desires for all of humanity are going to collapse in a heap, right? Or at least that's how my emotions feel. But they're not. God is bigger than that situation. He's bigger than me, bigger than you. And he's able to help us come to peace if we will be reconciled to our brother and sister and pray. And pray about everything that bugs us. And thank God for his blessings and the situations he resolves. And let his peace descend. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers.